Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. This is Russ, K5TUX, and uh, you have tuned in to episode number 121 of Linux in the Ham Shack. Recorded this day, January the 7th of 2014. And we've got a full house in here with me tonight, so it's probably going to be a very good show. Uh, No guarantees, however. So we'll start with uh, the usual suspect, uh, Pete. VE2XPL from just outside Montreal, Canada, the most polite podcaster in the known universe. How's it going, Pete? It's going all right. Thank you. First show of 2014, and I am excited. Happy to be here. Happy to be inside, mostly. We also have Cheryl with us tonight. How are you? Yay! I am fine, but I'm freezing to death. And we have a, a guest tonight. We have uh, someone who has listened to the show for um, as long as I can remember, and I don't remember that far, but uh, he's also in the chat room pretty much every night. And his name is Ted, and his call sign is Whiskey Alpha Zero Echo India Romeo. Uh, Yay. And he is uh, the author of the TW Asterisk uh, suite of tools for uh, ham radio operators tw clock twcw twpsk etc 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 so welcome uh to the show ted i would say again because i believe you have been on once before i have been and it's good to be back and this is as you said ted wa0eir in eastern iowa where it's warmed up to minus four degrees now oh lovely Ted has decided that he has a topic that he wants to talk about, which we'll get to in the second segment, but uh, you're welcome to chime in on anything we discuss this evening, so looking forward to hear from you. We'll start off, as we usually do, with uh, some short topics of interest, the first of which is that um, three weeks ago, I think it was, I was approached by the editor of AmateurRadio.com, which is a site on the interwebs all about amateur radio, uh, as the URL might seem to indicate, where they syndicate uh, and have a lot of original content about all things amateur radio. And uh, I was asked if he could, he being Matt, would be able to syndicate our posts about our uh, episodes as we release them over on amateurradio.com, to which I said, uh, hell yes. As of episode number 120, we have been syndicated over at AmateurRadio.com. So uh, in the usual RSS feed of things that you get over there, our episodes now show up. So Excellent. It's very cool. cool. We're famous. Uh, Sort of. <laughs> there are. I, I wasn't. I wasn't familiar with this website. I'm just looking over it right now. It's, uh, it's very much of interest. It's a little bit of everything for everybody. That's cool. Yeah, there are now seven or eight people who know we exist, <laughs> uh, and not counting us. Seven or eight, seven or eight more. <laughs> uh, yes, ever the optimist. Ted, are you familiar with AmateurRadio.com? I really, I, I mean, I think I've seen it in passing a couple of times, but I don't recall ever going there for uh, 
for anything really actually but uh i'm curious to hear if another ham has has gone over there to see what they do well actually i have but only because i saw it on the etherpad and i took a quick peek at it just a few minutes ago uh as i suspected it's useless no sorry man <laughs> i'm sure amateurradio.com has a lot of followers and it's a great site and uh we are uh chuffed as the english say to be over there so yeah, uh, it's a, it's, there's a, a whole blog uh, section too, so it's interactive as well. You can go on there, and uh, uh, the f- the first post, if you guys go to amateurradio.com right now, uh, called "There's a Chill in the Air," and it's by a fellow Canuck uh, V3WDM, uh, whose name is Mike, lives in Ontario, uh, the next province. Talking about uh, what we've been talking about, and everybody else in the world is talking about right now, at least in North America, is the cold, cold weather. So. Uh, yeah, that's kind of interesting. A little Canadian content there, too. Yeah, all this, this global warming is going to kill us, I know. <laughs> yeah, you know it. <laughs> Just not this month. All right, well, I'm done talking for at least a minute or so. Tell us about the Society for the Prevention of Amateur Radio. It's not the <laughs> the Society for the Preservation of Amateur Radio. No, the prevention, uh, isn't that what you said? Oh, no, I see it. <laughs> Uh, SPAR, S-P-A-R, the Society for the Prevention of Amateur Radio, would like to announce its uh, sixth annual Winter Field Day 2014. Uh, this event has been going on uh, for a few years, all well, six, obviously, uh, and happens the last full weekend of every January. So this year, Saturday, January 25th, uh, uh, 1700 UTC or 12 noon Eastern on Saturday the 25th, yeah, that's correct, uh, through uh, 17 uh, UTC or 12 noon on the Sunday. Uh, so it's an annual event, uh, and you can check out uh, spar-hams.org for uh, all the info. Uh, I have participated with my club once before, about three years ago. Um, of course, it's not as uh, popular as the uh, Summer Field Day, uh, but it is a good initiative, and there are participants. And over the years, uh, more and more people have uh, grafted on. So our, our very own uh, show notes uh, taker, V2HKW Harrison, uh, is actually uh, partaking in a grand way. Uh, he's going to be uh, setting up uh, a whole uh, a whole setup uh, on his land. Uh, there's going to be uh, probably, uh, well, it sounds like seven or eight uh, hams, uh, local hams that are going to be uh, taking part here. So he's going to be setting up tents and uh, heaters, I hope. And I told him that if it wasn't minus 1,000 that I would uh, come visit because Harrison lives about 40 minutes away. So uh, it will be my uh, second uh, attempt at Winterfield Day and. Uh, it's always fun to uh, play outside, so uh, yeah, it'll be uh, very good. So I don't know if any of you guys uh, know of or have participated in uh, Winter Field Day, uh, Russ, uh, Ted? Nope, not I, and as it's as these field day events tend to happen on the weekends, as this one does, I will be away from my ham radio gear. However, if it happens that sometime during this year that I am actually able to start telecommuting full-time, I will actually be able to be on the radio on the weekends, and I will be able to do such things, uh, which will be cool for two reasons. Uh, so, Ted, have you participated in Winter Field Day? I'm sure you've participated in the uh, the bigger one. Um, yes, and actually the local club has... An, uh, special event station on the first Saturday after the, uh, New Year's. We're located here on the Mississippi, right by a lock and dam, and the Army Corps Engineers has an Eagle Watch Days. So just, uh, just about this time every year, we have an Eagle Watch special event station. This year, they figure there's about 600 bald eagles uh, nesting around the lock. 
Wow. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> There's such cool birds to watch. I mean, I don't, I don't care if you love birds or hate birds or I'm not particularly a big birder, but I, I think eagles are just the coolest things. These, these are beautiful. Beautiful bald eagles. Very good. Any hunting going? Pardon? Hunting for eagles? Hunt- hunt- <laughs> That's illegal here. That's illegal. It's illegal here, too. Don't worry. Yeah, it tastes like chicken. <laughs> Most likely. All right. I hear, I hear the sirens coming. Oh, <laughs> uh, boy. What's the next topic? Club log. I heard about this from a member of my old club, uh, the Aristic Amateur Radio Association. They mentioned this as a resource for those who are interested in doing DX work. Um, apparently, it's it's kind of along the lines of Qscope in that it allows you to do some analytics with your logs. Um, basically, it's one of those sites where you can go there, sign up, upload all of your QSO data, um, and I'm not sure the formats. I'm sure you can look that up uh, if you choose to use this tool. Uh, nothing about this is likely open source or anything like that, but if you are a DXer, uh, chasing those uh, elusive stations or, you know, sodas or iotas or uh, any of those things or looking for DXCC or other DX awards, this is a site you may want to participate in that can help you along your path to DX excellence. Um, don't really know all that much about it. And like I said, it doesn't, it is not open source or anything like that. But some folks may find it of interest. And therefore, we should let them know that it exists, and we've done so. Yeah, it seems to be a, quite the uh, enterprise. Uh, there's five or six people involved uh, full-time, the creator, the database manager. Uh, it's a help desk volunteer. They have a help desk. I mean, uh, expedition tools guy and a zones manager. So I'm not sure what all these people do. Although it explains it in the About Us page, I just haven't read the whole thing. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's just not—it's not just one guy, you know, doing this whole thing by himself. He's got a little bit of an entourage, so uh, it seems to be a pretty serious uh, enterprise, and uh, I think it's pretty cool. I wish the About page had a little bit more information, but every time I'm looking for information, it's asking me to log in, and I haven't done that yet. I don't have an account, so maybe you can find out about, you know, file types and, and stuff like that once you're. Um, once you're a member, I have no idea. Yeah, I, I have not signed up for it either because I don't really do a lot of DX work. And uh, uh, Mike, who is the creator, uh, G7 Victor Juliet Romeo, G7 VJR over there in the UK. Uh, nice looking gentleman, obviously hates software freedom, though. If this is a tool that might help you out uh, and you don't care about your software freedom, then by all means, go for it. It, it is free. It, it is free, yes. It is free as in beer, not not free as in freedom. We learn from uh, Hamvention every year how much people don't give a rat's butt about any of that. Some people do, and that's okay. But, I mean, if, if like I said, there's not that many. Generally, there's not that many tools available to the ham radio operator. I mean, there's a lot in terms of, of commercially. There's not a whole lot of stuff that does what you need. So if it does what you need, then more power to you. I think it's a great resource. I've actually already forwarded it to a couple of members in our club who are huge DXers, and I'm going to get their opinions on it because I'm pretty sure they'll be playing with it. Yep, but we try and let you know about everything, and if you want to know about the free as in freedom type stuff, this is the place to get your info. So enough about Club Log. We must move on. We must move on to a comment from the author, uh, Johan Meiss, ON4QZ, 
about uh, the latest release of QSS TV, which we talked about in a very recent episode of this very program, which was uh, version 7.1 when we talked about it. But he has since released version 8.1, which he lets us know now supports HamDRM. Uh, which for those who may not be familiar with that, it is a digital SSTV. Some might think that SSTV was already digital, uh, but apparently this is a different mode uh, using a different encoding technology, which uh, they call or they uh, synonymize with digital slow scan television. And that is now available in the 8.1 versions of QSS TV. However, uh, one thing that I did find out is that the repos for Debian and Ubuntu and so forth still only have version seven. So if you want to try this new version, you have to download and build it yourself. But he has got great documentation over at his website. Uh, the link will be in the show notes, uh, but I'll read it real quick here for people who don't like show notes. Uh, it's users.telenet.com. That's T-E-L-E-N-E-T dot B-E for Belgium, stroke Oscar November 4, Quebec, Zulu, stroke QSS TV. And uh, you can find the manual there, the the download for the new uh, bit of software. And uh, I've tried it out, and it's a much nicer interface and uh, works very well, although I'll be damned if I can figure out how to locate an SSTV signal on the waterfall. I tried it for an hour and a half before the show, and I got buckus. I'm an SSTV. Maybe it's because you're using your old analog television. No, I'm using a computer. <laughs> I am using a an electronic computing device. Electronic. When you mentioned that they claim that it's digital now, and said that it was digital before, but what was digital before was the encoding of your analog signal to the computer. So now is it that it's kind of like digital TV? It's it's digital full out now, or what? I kind of gathered there that that's the way it is, although I'm not real familiar with ham DRM. And I have to say that the use of the, the term DRM is rather unfortunate because that has a very negative connotation in uh, the free software world. Uh, but it doesn't stand for digital rights or digital restrictions management, whichever is your preference. It stands for Digital Radio Mondial, which is supposed to be true digital. And uh, that, that's all it means. has nothing to do with, uh, you know, cheating you out of your privacy or restricting your ability to view anything. Uh, just unfortunately has the same letters. One of these days, I'd actually like to decode a picture off of an HF signal. So if anyone's ever done that, tell me how to do it because I'm lost. Maybe there's just not a whole lot of people doing it and you couldn't see anything on the waterfall because there just wasn't anything there to see. I'd, I'd, I don't think... I don't know, but I know here it doesn't seem to be that popular. So I actually haven't played with this, so I have no idea what I'm talking about. But it seems to me that um, slow scan television is is not something that's super popular. So maybe there's just not a whole lot of signals there to be decoded. Perhaps somebody can correct me. I'm not sure. On on my waterfall, I saw a lot of stuff that looked like a signal. Like if I was doing PSK31, I'd have been zeroed in all over the place even though I tried to focus on what I thought was a good signal and my little indicator of signal strength was, you know, fluctuating madly like I had a signal, I never got a lock and I never got an image. So I'm doing something wrong, clearly, but I don't think it's because there weren't signals there. I think it's because I'm an idiot. 
Well, that's good. Not that you're an idiot. <laughs> well, that, that well that's good. There. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, and by the way, uh, QSSTV is GPLv3 for those who do care about software freedom. Yes. Hooray. <laughs> Uh, and also, we got a bit of feedback, which we'll get to later, wherein I found uh, another, I found out about another piece of software for Linux that is also about decoding and sending slow scan TV. And this is an application called SlowRx. Uh, you can find this at windytan.github.io stroke slowrx. It's a, it's a pretty good-looking program. I didn't get a chance to download and run it, but it is a native application for Linux, uh, not something you have to run under Wine, uh, written in a version of C called C99 by Auna Reisenen. Um I love how the, the Norwegians and the Belgians and the Swedes are the ones who write all this software. It's like, I wonder if there are any American developers of ham radio software. It's so mm. cold there in the Netherlands that they have nothing better to do than stay inside, stay warm, and code. <laughs> yes, I was hoping to get a rise out of Ted. All I got was a hmm. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh does Ted have uh, that background? Yes, I believe I introduced him on the show discussing all the software he has written. Oh, no, no. I thought you meant he was from the Netherlands. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, I think the important part of that was the coding bit, not the... The Norwegian. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> slow tonight. Slower than usual. Slower than slow scan TV. Slower than molasses running uphill in the winter. Anyway, Auna's uh, call, yeah, anyway. call sign is OH2EIQ, October Hotel 2, Echo India, Quebec. And it's licensed under the what I am calling the Slow RX license. It's not based on any free software license, but it's basically... It's not copyleft, but it is definitely free as in freedom. So, uh, and also free as in beer. Uh, it's uh, permission to use, copy, modify, and or distribute the software for any purpose with or without fee is hereby granted, provided the, the above copyright notice in this permission notice appears on all copies. So that's a good thing. So uh, give it a try if you like. It is not in any of the repos that I'm aware of. So it's a you know download and build type application, but... Uh, uh, certainly doable. There's instructions on the website on how to get it built and all of that. So if you want to try it, by all means, do so. And I probably will at some point as well, as soon as I figure out this whole QSS TV debacle. So, <laughs> You'll figure it out. That's right. So with that, I'm going to shut up for a couple of minutes while Pete talks about the stuff that he put in here. Yeah, a couple of follow-ups from uh, past episodes. Uh, uh, the Voice of Russia, a few episodes ago, we uh, announced that the Voice of Russia was going to go silent after many, many years of broadcast. Uh, but it seems that uh, the Voice of Russia, which uh, formerly known as Radio Moscow, for those of you who are in the know, is not going QRT after all, which is very cool. Um, it turns out that a, a gentleman by the name of Tom Witherspoon, uh, K4SWL, uh, was curious to see, uh, he had heard the announcement too, and he was curious to see um, if they were actually going through with it or not. So he wrote Radio Moscow. And the response he got was uh, this, uh, quote, We're glad to let you know that the voice of Russia will stay on the air in 2014. However, considerable changes in our frequency schedule are expected. Uh, since the information uh, the updated frequency chart will be available on the Voice of Russia's website in the new year. So, uh, and that would be voiceofrussia.com slash radio underscore broadcast. 
uh, slash frequencies. You can just go to voiceofrussia.com uh, and follow the links. Uh, so, uh, and it seems that this was uh, an enterprise uh, by uh, Vladimir Putin himself who wanted to uh, keep uh, the uh, Voice of Russia on the air. So um, I thought that was uh, very exciting news. I actually listen to the Voice of Russia once in a while on HF. I don't listen to it on the web, but it actually comes through uh, very clearly on 40 meters, uh, usually starting about 8 p.m. our time, uh, once the uh, sun uh, is low enough. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, it's kind of cool. Brings me back to the days of uh, you know the all the old uh, war movies and uh, the propaganda from the Voice of Russia and in, in, in the warriors and things like that. Although propaganda is theoretically no longer there but um yeah it's uh interesting good to hear that they are going to stay up and and broadcasting yeah indeed our second follow-up story has to do with something we also talked about two episodes ago was uh the uh, sun uh, the, the sun's magnetic field uh, shifting uh, and, and I remember that I was saying that I got this from uh, one of the papers in the UK and, and couldn't find anything on NASA's website, so I was wondering if this was a sketchy story or not. But no, it seems that uh, NASA is confirming uh, that the sun has flipped upside down, basically. Uh, north and south poles are reversed, and uh, that means that we have officially reached the midpoint of solar cycle uh, 24. So uh, this uh, happens in a 22-year uh, no, sorry. The direction is to begin the completion of a 22-year-long process, which will culminate, culminate in the poles switching once again. So uh, 22 years from now, uh, you can look forward to the next uh, flipping of the sun. Uh, apparently, it had no uh, significant uh, effects on uh, the Earth, but the effects uh, extend billions of kilometers beyond Pluto. So it's uh, the the NASA claims, and, and I'm sure they're right, that the uh, polarity, the polarity, the field's polarity ripple all the way out to the Voyager probes on the doorstep of interstellar space. How do they know it's the doorstep? Anyhow, so yeah, it's official. Uh, halfway through Solar Cycle 24, for those of you who uh, pay attention to that stuff, which means we should have good DX. DX has been good, or it was good anyways, about a, I haven't really paid attention in a while, but about a month, a month and a half ago, uh, I think it was basically 10 to 20 meters, which just, was just hopping, was, was, was very alive. So, All and, right. uh, the last of these stories, uh, isn't a follow up, but, uh, for those who are interested, uh, the first Linux release of 2014 uh, goes to Arch Linux, which was released uh, two days ago on the 5th. So Arch Linux is the uh, first to release a new distro for this year. So you could uh, go uh, check that out in the repos. Sounds good. And since I am not a fan of Arch, I will not be doing that. But I know uh, a lot of people are fans of Arch. And uh, there you go. You've got a new Arch to try out. Although, uh, if I remember correctly, Arch is a heavily rolling release. So if you've been keeping up with your updates, you're already at uh, the current version. So no need to run out and, and download the new one. No, that's what they say. If you're already an Arch user, you just have to uh, click what amounts to the uh, update button. And th there's a command line, uh, which I can't remember off the top of my head. I read it somewhere. Uh, so it's just if you're a new a newbie to Arch or reinstalling it from something else, then you'll have to uh, download the ISO and uh, go from scratch. Available on 32 and 64-bit, of course. So uh, those of you who might be interested, uh, check it out. Uh, new Year's Baby, Arch Linux. Oh, isn't that sweet? <laughs> All right. Well, that's it for our short topics and the end of the first segment. So uh, since I was too busy to get around to 
picking any music for this episode. Pete has bailed me out once again, uh, but therefore he gets introduction duties. For our musical, our first musical selection of the evening, a band that we've uh, played before, they're called Antares. Uh, they're from a little town called Pau in France. This is an older tune uh, released in uh, 2006, uh, courtesy of Gemendo. It's from their album Breathe Again, and the song is called uh, Voodoo Dream. So we hope you like it. <laughs>
really like that tune. A little bit uh, melodic and... and uh, <clears throat> Grungy. Scary. We <laughs> <laughs> like that one quite a bit. Good choice. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. All right, so Ted, go ahead and tell us why you wanted to bring up the Unix and Linux philosophy. I've been reading all the stuff you put in the Etherpad. I don't think I'd ever heard Eric Raymond's 17 points before, so this is kind of new information for me, But it, and it's kind of interesting. I'm not sure that everyone who is a, a follower of Unix and Linux follows uh, these bullet points to the letter. Uh, if they do, I'm sure it's mostly accidentally. But I'm kind of curious because you, you brought this up uh, last night and um, was just wondering why it was on your mind. To uh, to get in the Unix philosophy, you're probably right. A lot of people don't get involved with it too much because it, it's primarily for the developers. But uh, it, it's also things that you will see if you use the shell prompt and, and, and basically any other app. Uh, I'll, you'll see a lot of these points being followed. But to really get down to it, you kind of have to go back to to its beginning, which pretty much was the beginning of, of Unix itself. And from what I've read about Unix, um, there wasn't a kickoff meeting for the Unix project. Uh, the manager didn't bring the team in and introduce the, the project to them and, and so forth. Unix kind of evolved from from some testing that a couple of guys were doing. It uh, eventually evolved, morphed into a, what we use today. Uh, Unix philosophy, basically the same thing happened. It, it grew, it evolved. It wasn't, uh, wasn't written down at any point in time, which is why, uh, given the three uh, URLs, which will be in the show notes, I'm sure, they're all a little bit different. All the verbiage is a little bit different. There's no can standard. This is what it is, chiseled in stone. If we, if we want to assign it to somebody, uh, a lot of places will say it was originated by Ken Thompson, one of the original uh, designers that, that implemented the Unix system. I would also put Dennis Ritchie in there, too, I suppose. And what the Unix philosophy is, is just a set of, of norms or philosophical approaches for writing software. And a lot of it, like I say, it evolved. It was based on the experience of, of the developers of the system itself and experiences from people who developed applications on Unix and therefore, of course, Linux. So I'm sure some of those were hard-learned uh, experiences. But a lot of them are basically just just some other principles you've probably heard of before, I feel, and, and they've just been tweaked a little bit to apply to software development. What what the philosophy emphasizes primarily is when you're developing software, you should build small, short, simple, clean, modular-type code. And that small, short, clean, simple brings, of course, to mind for me at least one of my favorite uh, principles, the KISS principle. And that, we know, stands for uh, keep it short and simple, right? Depends on who you are. It was explained to me as keep it simple, stupid. Well, <laughs> I know, but I used to say keep it short and simple because I, I couldn't tell my students to keep it simple, stupid. You know? uh, good point, good point. Some other ones that, that you may have heard of that come to mind when I see that, that one line there about short and small and simple is, is that less is more. And, and you will see that, and there are examples of that all over the, the Unix system and, and various interesting stories about it as well. Uh, another one is small is beautiful, of course. So all of those kind of tie together, and, and the modularity 
that's kind of the divide and conquer uh, process. All of that makes it easier to write the program if you if you divide it into small chunks. It makes it easier to maintain, and you can also repurpose it too. You can take these small chunks and and use them someplace else, for example. So making it easier to maintain is is a big thing, and especially when you're talking about open source code where somebody else is going to come in there and try to maybe repurpose it, then as is quite common the case, the original author might not be the person who has to maintain it. So keeping it small, short, and simple, it's it's a lot easier to comprehend what's going on because you're just working with small chunks. It's not the, the old problem of trying to get your arms around some 500-pound marshmallow. Instead, you've got small building blocks that you use. I've seen the official standards and methods spelled out in several different places, anywhere from, from that one liner to maybe three sentences to all the way up to 17. There's, there's even one that's uh, only six statements, uh, six rules, he calls them. And, and rule number six is there is no rule number six. So I guess that one's really five. One of the simpler ones, say, when you write a program, you should write programs that do one thing and do that one thing well. As soon as you try to add on to that, you try to get to that 100%, the program tends to blow it out on you. You just, again, end up with that 500-pound marshmallow. So make it do one thing, and the second bullet for that three-sentence one is to write programs so that they'll work together. That way, you, again, you don't have to reinvent a wheel. You have a, maybe an existing program that does what you want to do. If you make the program so they work together, then you can take one program, feed it to another program, feed it to another program, and that eliminates having to reinvent things. And the third one is to write programs to handle basic ASCII text strings. That's because that tends to be a very universal interface. And a lot of this is probably, and those three, probably reminds you of things that you may have seen if you're messing around with the shell. Lots of those programs uh, at the shell level take text from the input and send text as an output, and you can connect those together. I've been looking through these rules as you've been talking about them, and I kind of, I kind of jumped over some of the earlier ones. Although the the very first rule, the rule about modularity, was kind of an interesting one to me. It immediately made me think of the Linux kernel development um, between like version 1, version 2, 2.2, 2.4, 2.6, and now into version 3. Because when I started in Linux, I was working with um, early 2.0 kernel into 2.2, and those were not built to be modular, which is the first rule of this philosophy. The idea was that they had um, build parts. You configured the parts that you wanted, but then you assembled those parts into a monolithic entity. And that's the way the kernel was structured up until version 2.2. When they actually got through the, the development part of 2.3 and into the release version of 2.4, they started to shift over to a modular identity for the Linux kernel. And then by the time 2.6 came out, it was pretty much entirely module, modular. And you could build any part of the Linux kernel that you wanted as an independent module, which could be added, removed, or whatever. Now that they're fully embedded in the modular philosophy, that's how 
3.0 and 3.2 are are being developed. So I think it's kind of interesting that this is considered the Unix philosophy, which you know, which is at the heart of where Linux came from. But it didn't Linux itself didn't seem to start that way, but it came back to the rule of modular coding when it finally found its stride. I'm not sure if it's a chicken and egg problem where the rule begat the way the Linux kernel was ultimately developed or if it just was a natural extension of how it should be developed and that goes back to the original rule. But that's interesting, you know, it's interesting to me and that's how it developed and that's immediately what I thought of when I saw this first rule. You're right, exactly. Actually, I think the ver- very first kernel I had was 0.92 <laughs> on Slackware. And you built a kernel in those days. You specified, I want this device and this device and this device and these different parts, and they got compiled and linked in. Probably if you go back even further to where you had Unix on a DEC or DG or an HP in that situation, I think a lot of the options that you could have would be today quite limited compared to what, what you have today because, you know, HP or one of these other manufacturers, there were only certain devices you could, you could hang on this particular machine. So compared to today where there are dozens of different devices and we need dozens of different drivers for each of those devices, if that's the problem, then by doing it modularly like like they're doing it now is a great improvement, as, you, as you've pointed out, because it eliminates a lot of rebuilding of kernels. Yep, absolutely. And that's I remember. It's like if you, you know, in, in the early Linux kernels, if you put uh, a new sound card in your computer, the chances are that that particular driver wasn't built into the kernel. There were none of these RAM disk images. There was, there was no modularization of the kernel. So if you wanted that sound card to work, you had to alter the config file and rebuild the entire kernel. And you're talking about machines that are, you know, 486, 586. Uh, an overnight process. Yeah, early Pentium class machines. You're talking 8, 12, 16, 24-hour process to rebuild these kernels to get stuff to work. And it's no wonder that... Uh, the uptake of Linux was slow in these days because that that's how everything was sort of built. It's come full circle now and it's completely different, but the people who saw it early still kind of have that mindset. Uh, and I think we're still trying to overcome it to a certain extent. Exactly. And, and it's partly because all of the different sound cards that are available, you know, dozens of them. So you need some kind of flexibility so you can just go pick the one that's actually there and 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 link that one in. Yep. As I've been looking through these, um, the the two that sort of stick out to me more than any of the others of uh, of Eric Raymond's seventeen rules are seven and eight. I'll go ahead and address those here. The seven is uh, the rule of transparency. Uh, which says that developers should design for visibility and discoverability by writing in a way that their thought process can lucidly be seen by future developers working on the project and using input and output formats that make it easy to identify valid input and correct output. This rule aims to reduce debugging time and extend the lifespan of programs. But I think the transparency has another benefit in that it's sort of the many eyes philosophy that's bandied about when it comes to open source, the 
not not only should and did programmers code so that other programmers could read their code early on, but that's a useful philosophy because it means that if everything is out in the open, a la open source, it's easy to debug, it's hard to create security vulnerabilities, and it speaks to a culture of uh, openness and, in fact, friendliness uh, between coders and for users who use the program, knowing that each bit of code that comes out is modular from the first rule, uh, written to a purpose, and is vetted by all those eyes that see and work on the code as it comes out. And that, I think, is one of the great benefits of what we call open source or free software in this day and age. And it's one of Eric's fundamental rules uh, in his Unix philosophy. And I I think it's a logical progression from one to the other. Exactly. Uh, There there are things you can do in the code to to easily aid in debugging. Uh, A simple pound define of and then wrap that around a print within the code. So typically the print statement isn't there when the program runs, but you can go in and change the the value of that debug variable, and then all of a sudden, after you recompile, it starts printing out values at different points throughout the program, making it a lot easier to debug. So, Peter, we... uh, Number... Oh, yeah, number eight, which was the one right after the rule of transparency, which is the rule of robustness. Uh, which suggests that uh, developers should design robust programs by designing for transparency and discoverability because code that is easy to understand is easier to stress test for unexpected conditions that may not be foreseeable in complex programs. And the thing of it is, you know, early on in the coding cycle, everyone was kind of friendly. There were no people out there, were no script kiddies, there were no people writing uh, worms trying to, you know, dismantle the ARPANET or BitNet or whatever the early uh, collegiate and government networks were of the time. The whole idea was collaboration. It was only once that stuff was uh, handed to the populace in general that the sort of nefariousness of, of, you know, interconnected computers came out. And I think that's where this rule came from. But it's still a good rule and should be exercised whenever possible. And I think in in the open source and free software community, it is exercised as most of these rules are. That's why I believe that that kind of software is better software, more effective software, more reliable software, and more secure software, as opposed to software where the only hands that are in it are ones that you don't know where they've been, and they don't want you to see what's behind the curtain. Yeah, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And and part of that is they also mention is that modularity plays a part in that because it's it's a matter of being able to understand it pretty much at a glance. So again, keeping it small and in, in small modules, clean interfaces, simple parts, then it's uh, it's a lot easier to understand the organization of the program. And by extension, all of the things that that program creates, because the program being being modular itself is also a module in a larger system. It's like a cog in a larger machine. Therefore, if all of the subparts are clear, open, uh, easy to debug, and easy 
to you know vet then all of the things that lay on top of it that are based on it are similarly easy to understand use uh and keep secure um right it's a you know a pretty logical progression so have we lost our other people or have we just gone nutty i'm no i'm taking notes i think this is fascinating give my two cents if you want for what it's worth oh yeah i'd love to hear your two cents for for those who don't know me i i don't code i have never coded and perhaps never will maybe i will when my when my kids grow up i might not have more time but i've been reading through these as you guys have been talking about it i I think this is genius i mean the philosophy it just kind of it's kind of blows my mind this could be uh, not just applied to coding. This could be applied to so many other scenarios, projects, businesses, politics. Just the, the philosophy itself, I find, is, is very logical. It's very simple. It's easy to understand. I'm just wondering, has anybody ever mailed this link to the people at Microsoft? I mean, where the hell were they when, when this, this philosophy came about? Um, I, I don't know. It's uh, everybody should check out these links. I mean, just the, it just makes so much sense. The thing is I've that never... the the software that Microsoft Windows is based on, the early versions of DOS that came from CPM and stuff like that, were along the same lines of of Linux. So Bill Gates, whether he knows you know whether he knows of Eric Raymond and his seventeen rules of Linux philosophy, knows where this code came from. And he, he, like Steve Jobs, are the people who monetized it, who turned it, who turned it against itself, uh, who, who turned their backs on, you know, the openness and the, the modularity and the robustness and transparency of the software to make a fortune. And that's what they've yeah, but done. Money, money, I mean, aside from the transparency, you could still make money on something and apply most of these rules. I mean, modularity, clarity, uh, you know, simplicity, robustness, it could all be there without being necessarily, not that I agree, but without being transparent, it could still work. Follow this and, and that's going to help you make more money because it's going to be easier to debug and maintain. Yeah, look, yeah, if you look at it that way, <laughs> I guess so. Russ mentioned that it, it also makes it more secure, but I'm I'm just curious, is it just more secure because not as many people use it? If it became as popular or more popular than let's say Microsoft Windows and everybody was using it, would it be more vulnerable to bugs because more people would be playing in it, especially because it's open source? Would would that is that a possibility? And I'm, I'm asking the question. Yeah, I'm, I, I think Russ could answer this one because he might want to compare it with the black box versus crystal box. Well, I'm I'm not naive enough to believe that Linux is entirely secure just because it's free software and its source is open. I am entirely willing to accept the premise that it's partially more secure because less people use it. But I think if you took the situation as equals, if if you extrapolated the use of Linux to the same number of users who use Windows, I still believe that free software would be more secure just because you have a huge developer base who have eyes on the code at all times. And because of the licensing scheme, especially in copyleft software, you have a licensing structure that makes sure, that basically ensures that people are watching the software, the code, to make sure that it follows the guidelines 
uh, of the copy left. As soon as you obfuscate anything, then you are creating a vulnerability. And that's why people have such, you know, um, exude such distress when they found out that there are, you know, binary blobs in various, uh, in the kernel, for example, and in various parts of, of open source software or, or various software that touch touches open source. They get really uptight about that because anytime you obfuscate anything, once you can't see in, you know, like Ted said, once you go black box instead of crystal box, people get really nervous about that thing. And so once, once it's mm. not clear what you're looking at, there's no telling what's in there. You know, even if there's only two people watching, if it's a crystal box, those two people can see, and therefore it's inherently more secure because if nothing else, they can raise the alarm. But once you hide it, once it's behind the curtain, there's nothing you can do. And, That's and so, yes, point. if you take it, if you take it on an even level, if, you, like I said, you'd have to extrapolate out, obviously, because the Linux market is, you know, what, one, two percent of the Windows and Mac OS market. If you made them equals, I still say open source is more secure, maybe not by the margin, but it would still be more secure. I'd have to agree with your comments. I have one more question. I have no idea what a script kitty was, but I, I just thought that was a funny name. What, what's a script kitty? Shell commands, scripts. Okay. Yeah, basically what script kitties do is they go out onto BitTorrent, they download pre-compiled, pre-built hacks, and then they launch them against whatever computers they have access to. Vulnerabilities exist. There's, no, there's nothing we can do about that. The act of coding creates bugs. There are vulnerable machines on the internet. If your vulnerable machine touches a network somewhere, it can be hacked. Some of these hacks are very easy to perpetrate. So easy, in fact, that you don't even know how to do, you don't even have to know how to do it to do it. You can download, you know, pre-built attack vectors, run them on your Windows machine. They'll go out, infiltrate any machine they can find, whichever ones are vulnerable, they'll attack, create you know, zombie farms that go out and attack other machines. And the script kitty is basically a person who doesn't know what they're doing, but knows enough to go to a BitTorrent site, download a vulnerability scanner, and execute it. Jay Lindsay in the chat room uh, mentions, uh, yes, it would be more vulnerable with more users. As the target number of users rises, there will be more attacks on the users. But then Russ mentioned the opposite, that then there would also be more people watching the system for these attacks. So... Yeah, it's interesting. I, I tend to agree with Russ, though. I guess if it is an open box uh, or a crystal box and more people are paying attention, then it's easier to catch these 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 bad people. Yeah, and that's not to say that the number of attacks wouldn't rise in an open source scenario. Oh, because I, I'm it sure would. it would. I'm yeah, sure it, would. it absolutely would. It absolutely would. But I, I believe the response. I believe the response and the response times would be exponentially better than in the closed source world. I, I have to believe that. I think logic would dictate that it is. Okay, number one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, logic dictates. <laughs> Very so. good. There's a couple of good quotes at the bottom of one of these. Where, where was I? Unix is simple. It just takes a genius to understand its simplicity. <laughs> That's great. And then the other one that I like, Unix is user-friendly. It just isn't promiscuous about which users it's friendly with. <laughs> it's a quote from Stephen King. Uh, I don't know if it's the Stephen King or a Stephen King. Uh, is it PH? No, this is a Stephen King documentary producer 
in Wikipedia. Okay, yeah, because Stephen the King, one. the writer, is uh, Stephen P.H. King. So if it's a Stephen okay. V. King, then it's not him. <laughs> probably not the same one. Yeah, probably not. But uh, I, I think everyone should, you know, if nothing else, if you're interested in free software, which I assume that you are if you're listening to this show, and, of course, by free software, we're talking about Libre software, free as in freedom type software, you should check out the links that are going to be in the show notes and look at yeah, these. Yeah, please do. Um, look at these rules that Eric Raymond pointed out. Now, I will say that I've heard, I, I don't know Eric Raymond from a hole in the wall, but everyone I've ever talked to says he is a colossal dick. But, uh, <laughs> that, is, that is a genius. But apparently he's a very intelligent guy. An intelligent uh, dick. That's right. <laughs> that's right. He's a smart dick who um, has written some excellent works. And the, and the thing that this book, uh, that these rules come from, the art of Unix programming, is one of those legendary tomes in the Unix world. Um, so it's definitely worth a look at, regardless of what you may know or think about Eric Raymond. It's worth looking at. And uh, check out the links and read through these because it's an interesting read and you might actually you know, expand your mind a little bit about how you think about free software and just, and software in general, because, you know, we do this show because we're interested in the things that this philosophy promotes, uh, the idea of openness and transparency, robustness, repairability, economy of scale. Interconnectability, make them talk to each other. Right. Absolutely. I mean, all of these rules apply to a lot of things other than software, as Pete said earlier, too. So it, it's definitely worth a look, and I hope everyone will take the time to check it out, uh, even if it's only a few minutes. Yeah, it's, it's an easy read. You don't have to be a, any kind of coding genius. Believe me, I'm not. And it's just, it's just fascinating. I, I, I like philosophy anyways and, and exchange of ideas, so it kind of falls under that general umbrella as well. But yeah, it's, it's a really good read. Thanks for uh, bringing that up, Ted. That's very fascinating. Very good. Yeah, it's excellent. Uh, Jay, Jay Lindsay in the chat room is saying, uh, if you take the software, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like, he's got to jump in. Let's get it. <laughs> he says, uh, if you take the software out of the equation and see what you have left, you have users, uh, mostly dumb users. Microsoft can publish a fix for vulnerability, but it takes a user, either the direct user or, you know, the kids involved to actually apply the fix. You know what I mean? So just releasing a patch doesn't take care of the problem necessarily. Those are the type of people we're trying to get moved over to Unix, he's saying, so that they can be protected, I guess, under the, the aegis of open source software. Which is an interesting thought. I never really thought about that. I'm not sure how effective that would be. If there were no people, it wouldn't be very effective. There'd be no one to use it. But software would be very secure. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> it's the chicken and the egg thing again. I guess so. Well, I got to tell you, Ted, this turned out to be a much more interesting topic than I had anticipated it would be. Totally. Uh, totally. So not, not to say that I thought your topic was boring. I'm just not sure. I just didn't know where it was going to go. But honestly, it was way more thought-provoking than I ever thought. So I'm very glad that you brought it to us, and I hope you'll stick around for the next segment. You can uh, jump in wherever you like. All right, I'll be here. And if anybody else has uh, comments they want to make about the Unix and Linux philosophy and the things that you might read in the show notes as we publish them, 
we would love to hear your feedback and your comments. So uh, please get them to us, whether by voicemail, email, or uh, post on the website. But with that, we should probably move on to our third segment, which means we've got more music, and Pete's going to tell us what it is. All right. Came across this one uh, looking across Gemendo, as I like to do when I'm at work. <laughs> yes, I do work when I'm at work, but I listen to music, too. This one's uh, by a gentleman called Sean T. Wright, a gentleman from the U.K., from his album Sweet Lullabies. Uh, the tune is called uh, Mind on Fire. A little bit different than uh, what we usually play here, but it's a kind of a boppy tune. Uh, but what attracted me to it is that it features an instrument called the Mellotron. Uh, it's uh, an instrument that uses, uh, works by, by pulling a section of magnetic tape across a head as you're pressing the key. It's like, it's like a keyboard. So uh, with that, I uh, give to you uh, Mind on Fire by uh, Sean T. Wright from the album Sweet Lullabies. I hope you enjoy.
mind on fire. My mind is burning. Put it out. It's a little different, so I thought it was a good way to start the new year. It's got a beat, and you can dance to it. Yeah. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) That was probably the worst impression of Robin Williams that was ever done in human history. So. All right, quick announcement. This is probably not going to be as quick as I hope it's going to be. But anyway, I would like to announce uh, for those who didn't get the email in our uh, mailing list, if you're a member of the mailing list, you already know about this. But we have initiated a campaign to go to Hamvention 2014. I know I said a few episodes back that I was not going to go to Hamvention. Uh, I remember that too. Because Dayton could <laughs> you, suck it. Did you pay that ticket? I did not. Ah, you're going to go to jail. You're not even going to make it to Hamvention. No, I'm not, because Cheryl pointed out that we'll be in a car with different license plates. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. All right. Yeah, we'd like to go to Hamvention again, and uh, I want to say that I really appreciate all the folks uh, over the past four years who have donated to our Hamvention fund. Uh, But this time, we're going to try and do it up right. We're going to use crowdfunding to try and get there this time. We're going to try and raise all of the funds we need to go. Uh, instead of just the booth rent and then pulling the rest out of our pockets, which have become much shallower over the last year or so. Yeah, for everybody. Yeah, for everybody. But I figure that if just 10% of our listeners, 10% of the people who download this show could donate $10, we will meet our goal. Or one person could donate $1,000, and that's the exact same ratio and the exact same result. I know. That's awesome, right? (laughs) Don't you love math? Yeah, except one of those is going to happen and one isn't. (laughs) (laughs) Never know. Never know. (laughs) Well, anyway. um, Or a thousand people could donate one dollar. One dollar. Yeah, that would work too. That would be 100% of our listeners giving us a dollar. But I think the minimum is five bucks anyways for a pledge. No, you can donate a dollar. You just don't get okay, any yeah. of the cool stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, I see. So I don't get the cool stuff anyways. I donated to Jonathan, to Jonathan Adu's campaign uh, last week, right after we interviewed him. Not last week, last episode. Apologies. And uh, I, I was part of the sticker club, but then I found out later that they don't send the stickers to Canada. So I guess they get to keep their stinking <laughs> sticker. You got I'm just burned. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, we're doing the same thing that Jonathan did. We're doing an Indiegogo campaign. You can find us at igg.me stroke at, that's the A-T, not the at sign, uh, stroke LHS 2014. Uh, we're trying to raise all the money we need to get to the Hamvention. The way we've done this is like a Kickstarter campaign where if we don't meet our goal, all of your money will be refunded and we will not go to Hamvention. So there's really nothing to lose uh, unless... Uh, we actually meet our funding goal, uh, in which case we will be at Hamvention, and in which case you'll be out whatever you pledge. But with that, we are actually providing perks, which Pete alluded to earlier. Uh, some of those perks are like if you donate $5, we will mention you and your donation on the show, and we will also allow you to send us an email or whatever up to 100 words that we'll, we will read aloud on the show. And then we will also express our eternal gratitude for your five bucks. We'll uh, even give you a woohoo. Yeah, we'll even give you a woohoo and a badger. So, uh, there's that, profanity, we'll give you lots of badgers. <laughs> that's right. Absolutely. So, that in itself is worth five dollars. 
let's see. I don't want to go through all of these. You can you can go to the URL I just gave you and see all of the perks you can get. One of the coolest ones, or at least to me, one of the coolest ones is if you donate $125, and I know that seems like a lot, but to be fair, somebody has already done this. We already had a $125 donation. And what you will get with that, if you donate $125, is you will get all of the perks from all of the levels lower than that, which means you get, really? you know, yeah, that's right. Cool. You get the shout out, you get the 100 word message, you get a personally written haiku read on I the love show. that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite one. Uh, you get a keychain. You get a USB stick with a Linux distro and all of our episodes on it. You get a t-shirt or a hat, and we interview you on Linux in the Hamshack. So that means you get to come on the show and talk to us, berate us, get a badger, what, you know, whatever it is that you want to do on a future episode of Linux in the Hamshack. And that's all for 125 bucks. And then that actually will help uh, send us to the Hamvention as well. Uh, there's also a level wherein if you donate at that level, you get a bazillion different perks, and we also treat you to a steak and wine dinner. Okay, steak and wine. I was going to ask you, are we like taking them to McDonald's? Or oh no, 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 no. This is like the you know the real thing. Like if you want to go KFC. to a speaking of the Colonel, you know, we always talking to the Colonel. I think that would be a good Linux fit if we brought him to KFC. That would yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, but honestly, if you want to go to like a Black Angus and have three Long Islands, we will do that. I'll do that. Sure. Okay. Excellent. Thanks, well, thanks for inviting me. Okay. I should add to that that it's only if you attend Hamvention. Right. 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 We're going. We're going to do this. There's. There's two of these available. These high ones. These high donation amounts available. And in order to uh, to get this perk. Make sure that you're going to be at Hamvention because we're going to do these at Hamvention. In other words, uh, Hamvention runs over three days and two nights. So the two nights are the two nights that we're going to do this. So if you want to donate, you know, to get your your steak dinner, make sure that you're going to be there because otherwise you're not getting it. We'll get it. (laughs) I see. You're going to extract it forcibly, right? No, no, I'm just saying, we'll still go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll still go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we'll you, still go for dinner. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. We'll be there. But if you're not there, then you're kind of going to be bummed. So, uh, But anyway, yeah, I mean, the perk levels start at $5. They go all the way up to over $300. You know, some of these are just like ludicrous things that I threw together because, honestly, if you're going to give us that much money, I feel we owe you a steak dinner. And, and a lot of drinks. Yeah, and drinks, too. Absolutely. Drinks are included. Go to our campaign, igg.me stroke at, that's A-T, stroke LHS 2014, and you don't have to donate $5. You can donate a dollar if you want to. This campaign is going to February 20th. We hope it works out. Uh, if it doesn't, if we don't reach our goal, you get your money back. No you know, no harm, no foul, and we just won't be at Hamvention. So check out the campaign. Donate if you can. If you can't donate, please get the word out. Indiegogo has lots of tools for spreading the word. Uh, you can get it out on Google+, Twitter, Facebook, all of the social media networks and all that kind of stuff. So even if you can't give us a buck or two, just tell your friends because maybe they can give us a buck or two. You know, sometimes the word of mouth is even more valuable than two bucks. That's my spiel on that. Unless anyone has anything to add to it, we should probably move on. I'll let you do the next couple because I don't want to talk right now. All right, please donate. We'd like to go. All right. Anonymous uh, web comment. I'm not sure where on the web you got it. 
uh, Russ. But uh, here's another native Linux application for SSTV. And uh, the link's going to be in the show notes. Uh, you could go to uh, windytan.github.io slash slowwrx. So windytan, W-I-N-D-I, sorry, W-I-N-D-Y-T-A-N dot github.io slash S-L-O-W-R-X, native Linux application for those of you who want to play with uh, SSTV. So uh, thank you, Anonymous. Uh, appreciate the uh, comment. Wish you would have uh, given us your name so we could give you a shout-out. Uh, but that's all right. Uh, more web comments uh, from uh, Johan Maes. I, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing this right. I'm pretty sure I'm bastardizing that name too. Uh, Oscar November 4, Quebec Zulu. He says, hi, just to let you know that QSSTV version 8.1.x is out now, also supporting HamDRM. And this is what we were mentioning earlier, I believe, uh, Russ. Absolutely. This is where I got that information. And actually the one, the anonymous web comment was actually on our website as well. Okay, uh, cool. There was just no call sign or, or name associated with it, and that's where I got the bit about slow RX. No problem. All right, now we have uh, email feedback uh, from one person. Sorry, I'm just scrolling down <laughs> here to see uh, to see if the email continues into another email. Uh, email from Dave Maju M zero D C M Mike zero Delta Charlie Mike. And uh, bear with me here because my eyes are starting to go blurry. Uh, he says, hi, guys. Well, it's been a while since I listened to any podcast, especially with what's gone on during 2013. Anyways, whilst listening to episode 120, I could have sworn you had Richard Stallman with all the preachings about free software and GNU Linux until I noticed it was one of the co-hosts. I'm all for getting Linux out there. And yes, I use Steam on my main non-ham PC, and yes, I use the proprietary NVIDIA drivers. And yes, I use the proprietary NVIDIA driver only because the performance on the open source driver is totally rubbish, even for playing videos. And like Jonathan, I'm uh, I'm a sight-impaired Linux user. For me, there's got to be an even medium between open source and proprietary non-free quote-unquote, software. And I can say this has got to be the way forward, especially if Linux needs to be used by more users. Rant over, he says. I've just installed QSSTV v.8.x on my Shack PC and was pleasantly surprised to see that it now has DRMSSTV on it. And this is great. As I was about, as, as I was about to purchase crossover uh, to run on Windows version of the SSTV software. I'm not familiar with Crossover. I guess that's Windows's version of an SSTV program, is it? Uh, no, Crossover is actually an embellishment on Wine. The Wine project was used by the Crossover platform guys. They actually developed a sort of uh, overlay on top of it that allowed you to like really easily run like Microsoft Office and a lot of other like gaming apps and stuff on top of Wine. Uh, and it's a paid product, uh, so it's so it's like an additional layer on top of Wine, which sort of makes it easier to use Wine and run Windows apps on Linux. Okay, cool. Learn something every day. So it saved me some much-needed cash. And yes, don't we all need cash uh, nowadays with the economy and the toilet the way it is? I speak for my country, uh, but I know it's the same uh, in many places around the world. 
My Shack PC is an HP EliteBook 8440P running Ubuntu, Ubuntu, however you want to pronounce it, 12.04 LTS with uh, 4 gigabytes of RAM. And it just works without any changes needed to get any hardware working correctly. I also use CQR Log, FL. FL Digi, which is a great program, and a few other ham radio applications uh, connected to either my Yezu FT-857 or FT-817. Two amazing rigs, by the way. I love those radios. Uh, for portable operating, I'm guess, I guess he means the uh, 817 for portable operating, although you can portable operate with the 857 as well. It's not that big a rig. And I must say, it really opens other ham eyes, especially when they notice, uh, sorry, when they notice I'm not running a bloated OS like Windows. And the fact everything is there out of the box helps me to get others to make the switch to this great OS. So there you go. Well, uh, thank you very much, Dave, for uh, propagating the good news about Linux and uh, getting more users on board. I think that's really cool. Um, also, on the subject of the Raspberry Pi versus Beagle Bone, there's some things that Pi can do that the Beagle can't, like being used as a DC-250 megahertz 10 milliwatt transmitter, tank, thanks to GPI0 pin 4. I don't know what that is. You guys will have to enlighten me after. I've been playing with uh, Whisper, WSPR on the Pi, uh, on 7 and 14 megahertz, and have already had my QRP single signal heard over 2,000 kilometers. Well, that's very good on uh, 10 milliwatts. Although Whisper is, uh, for those who don't know, it's a propagation uh, software that lets you send out a signal and you're picked up by other Whisper users and you can see how your signal propagates around the planet. Um, so he continues, so I've... Uh, been busy, and I'm planning to be just as busy pushing Linux for both ham radio use and for the sight-impaired users. Plus, doing some portable operating once the warmer weather arrives, whether, uh, whenever that will be. Yeah, well, it's not going to be this week, I can guarantee that. Uh, Happy New Year from here in the UK. Dave, M0DCM in Warsaw, UK. Well, thanks, Dave. That's a lot of good points in there. We covered a whole lot more stuff in episode 120 than I thought we had. So uh, anybody have any uh, comments on what Dave had to say? Well, let me just tell you that GPIO stands for General Purpose Input Output. It's one of the functions of the the Raspberry Pi. There's like a, I forget how many pins it is. I think it's 16-pin interface on the Raspberry Pi on the board that allows you to hook up to various different um, components on, on the Pi board for doing different kinds of input and output. And apparently one of those can be used uh, to actually transmit on certain RF frequencies, which is kind of interesting. And yes, I don't believe that the BeagleBone has uh, any GPIO type interface on it. Uh, not that I'm aware of anyway. Okay, well there you go. I'm, you know, I'm sure they both have their uh, their pluses and minuses, and you'll find people everywhere who you know who like one better than the other. For it, it really depends on what you want to do with it. I mean, the Raspberry Pi does what you want. I know you're using one Russ uh, as an Echo Link node, and uh, as far as I know, it's it's working fine, and you're having no problems with it. It's doing what you want, and uh, you know, so so why not? If, if you'd rather do something with the Beagle Bone because of what it does versus what the Raspberry Pi can't do, that's okay too. So you use what uh, works for you, I guess. Yeah, the, the Beagle Bone is a bit more robust than the Raspberry Pi in terms of its straight for its straight up performance. 
you know, it has a faster processor. Its Ethernet ports are not tethered to the USB bus, so they're actually at full Ethernet speed and stuff along those lines. But the GPIO bus on the Raspberry Pi um, makes it a, a little bit more robust for, for more avid tinkerers uh, than those who just want a straight-up single-board computer like the BeagleBone. It's, it's almost like there's a, there's a range. Um, there's the BeagleBone on like the high end side, there's the Arduino on the low end side, which is like the true tinkerers, um, the true tinkerers board. And then the raspberry Pi sort of lands right in the middle. Yeah. I think Mike, uh, who was often with us into HTT mentioned he had an Arduino that was lying around somewhere in his shack that he hasn't used yet. If, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, but, um, I don't know, um, too many people who play with the Arduino, maybe because the Pi and the BeagleBone have come along since, and I, I have no idea. Well, I'm seeing in the chat room that there's discussion about the BeagleBone back, uh, BeagleBone Black, and the BeagleBone Black, yeah. Uh, and apparently it does have, yeah, yeah. Some, apparently it does have some sort of GPIO bus as well. Uh, maybe it's not as useful as the Pi's. I don't know. I don't do this kind of stuff, so. Well, that's why we have listeners, and they can uh, illuminate that's right. us. That's right. And if our listeners would ever call in and leave us voice feedback, then we'd have a really cool show. Oh, there you go. Mike says uh, David has one, uh, N2HTT. Uh, David is his son. Uh, flashing LEDs with it. Just a micro- microcontroller, no OS. So uh, you LEDs? Go. You mean LEDs? LEDs. I call them LEDs. <laughs> oh, you call them LEDs? <laughs> we call them LEDs. I LEDs. see. Light, light-emitting diode zeppelin? Yeah, yeah. You guys don't call them LEDs? <laughs> no, I call them LEDs. Okay. Ted, do you so. call them LEDs or LEDs? Uh, I'm a LED. You call them LEDs? Yeah. Go, go back to Canada, you commie. <laughs> Blame Canada. <That's> right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. LEDs. Fewer syllables. <laughs> it is fewer syllables. It's all about efficiency. Didn't you uh, listen to the whole discussion in uh, the second segment? Oh, now you're going to, yeah, right. (laughs) Fine. Fine. Alrighty then. (laughs) On that note. Well, let me tackle this one from, from Bob Chandler, because I don't really want to read all of this. Hello, Paisan, by the way, V3SRE from the next province there, from Ontario. That's right. Which means he can have me killed or something. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps. Depends on how much money he has. (laughs) The reason I don't want to read this is because it's long and because a lot of it is about um, open source philosophy that we have discussed uh, ad nauseum on this program. What I will do is I will post his comment in the show notes. Um, I hope you're listening, Harrison, so that anyone who really wants to read all of his comments can. Uh, But basically, he was talking about our discussion of Q-Scope back in episode number 117, and he went off on a... you know, something of a rant about open source software and free software, because I mentioned that I wasn't really sure if QScope was free software or not. And the reason I did that was just as a point of letting people know that I don't believe that QScope is open source or free software in the sense of the Libre software, just so that when folks use it, they're not confused and they're not you know, assuming that it is, in fact, something GPL or copyleft or MIT or Apache or something like that. I do. It's not commercial. It is free as in beer. Um, talking about Q-scoping and 
but I'm pretty sure that it is not open. And I have not talked to uh, Bradley Kuhn about whether or not the parts of it that are GPL uh, can be actually u- incorporated into proprietary software. I'm pretty sure they cannot unless the software is a GPL, which is a whole different thing. Uh, that's the Afro general public license, which allows open source software to be used as a linked library in other software, whether it be open source or not. This software from Bob V three SRE touches on all of these points but it would take me 20 minutes to read it, and our discussion would just go on probably well into the night. But I do want to thank Bob for sending this message. I do appreciate your your feelings about open source software and your position. I think those of us here who are regulars on the show are, you know, the co-hosts and those who listen share your views about open source software. And I want to say that I don't believe that Qscope falls under those guidelines, but that doesn't mean it isn't a valuable software project that does useful things and should keep you from using it uh, if you find it valuable. But in the interest of full disclosure, we should point out that it is not really open source, even though it may use components that are. That being said, we also have a contest to give away a Raspberry Pi. Make sure you get your entries in http colon stroke stroke lhspodcast.info stroke contests with an yes, s we have uh, at least one participant uh, we have Mike. many participants and actually on the next episode we have a bunch of voice feedback that i need to get to that we are just not going to get to tonight the next episode may be entirely voice feedback <laughs> <laughs> that'll be easy on us uh, there are at least seven voicemails that I have got to get to in the next episode. Oh, so You could have told me that before I said we weren't getting enough feedback, though. <laughs> oh, no, we can always <laughs> use more. Honestly, more is better. More is better when it comes to feedback. So, for sure, uh, for we, sure. We really hope you, there's voice feedback and there's written feedback and there's emails and there's comments on the website and there's Google Plus posts and there's Facebook likes and, and all of that stuff. We, we love it all, and the more of it, the better. But don't forget about the contest. Don't forget about our Indiegogo campaign. All that stuff will be on the website and in the show notes, so check it out. And guess what? After all this time, we get to bring Cheryl on, if she's even still here. Uh, to yes, do... I am. All right, excellent. She's been so very active in the chat room. <laughs> yeah, she's keeping all of our listeners entertained, which is great. So if you're not here listening to the live show and not in the IRC chat, then you're missing... Cheryl, because she's like entertaining everybody, which is awesome. But now you get to do our social media roundup. Yay. (laughs) Okay. Well, to start things out quickly so Pete can go to bed and everybody else can go to bed, um, donations and subscriptions. This month, Steve Conklin, Jeremy Hall, and Scott Pettigrew did monthly subscriptions. And our social media roundup. Uh, Joe Gogo Rocket, uh, Jack Higgs, <laughs> yeah. and Francesco Rogai, and I hope I didn't butcher that, joined us on Facebook or liked us on Facebook. Uh, on Google Plus, there is Fabrizio Badiani, Andrew Bowen, and JJ Fotchke. Yeah, careful with that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, if I butchered anything, I am very sorry. On Twitter, Tom Dysinger. Chris Gore, Gunther Hageman, Simone Maikuchi, Wayne Robertson, John Sundman, Mark Wall, and Richard Wheeler. 
And we had Lean31 join us on our mailing list. For Cafe Press, James Newman took a visit by our shop. And nobody went to Printfection. Boo-hoo. So, and that's that's it. So I was kind of surprised that we actually sold some stuff out of Cafe Press. So remember, we do have merch and stuff. And there's the new Badger where uh, you can get it on your, your Kindle or, you know, your smartphone, a T-shirt, a cap, all kinds of stuff. So make sure you check out Cafe Press and Printfection. Question, do you uh, have any merch at the... Um at Hamvention, usually when you go. Oh, we absolutely do. We bring merch with us and we sell it there. Excellent. Uh, excellent. <laughs> excellent. So, so now you have yeah. to guess which one was me and which one was Burns. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no idea. <laughs> All right. All right. So now we're open to anyone who has any final comments. Ted, Cheryl, Pete, anybody who has anything before we uh, do the outro and wrap this sucker up. I'm good. Yeah, I'd like to say thanks for having me on again. Yes, thanks, Ted, for coming on and for bringing that very interesting topic. Um, like I said, I wasn't sure how you know how we were going to approach that and where it was going to go, but honestly, once we got towards the middle of it and towards the end, I was really intrigued, and I think Pete was as well. So I'm I'm thankful for the suggestion and that you were willing to come on and talk about it because I uh, it was excellent. It really was. Very welcome taking us in a new direction uh, also covering philosophy now so which i love by the way yep i do as well all right with that i think uh we're very near the end of episode 121 i'm going to start the outro music and pete is going to lead us on out of here uh thanks to everyone for being here tonight it's been a great show yet again uh please check out our website http colon slash slash lhspodcast.info or you could just input that as lhspodcast.info that'll work quite fine uh, become an ambassador you could visit the website for upcoming events and information about how you could represent lhs linux in the ham shack linux in the ham shack at a nearby linux con or ham fest near you uh, if you'd like to do that uh, let us know you can email us at Info at lhspodcast.info. Leave us a voicemail, 1-909-LHS-SHOW. That's 1-909-547-7469. Hate mail, of course, is routed to our good friend Harrison, V2HKW. That's hate mail at lhspodcast.info. You can subscribe to the mailing list via the link on the website. Uh, as Cheryl mentioned, the lovely Sharon, uh, go to Cafe Press and Printfection and buy some of our show merchandise. Or come by Hamvention, you can pick some up there too. Uh, each purchase through Cafe Press or Printfection uh, helps out the show a little bit. Uh, you can also help out the show by clicking on the sponsored ads on the right-hand side of the column of the homepage. Uh, check out our sponsors. Uh, every time you click, uh, we get a little bit uh, into our kitty that way. So that's uh, www.cafepress.com slash lhspodcast or www.printfection.com slash lhspodcast. You can uh, listen to us live every other Tuesday, 8 p.m. Central Time. Uh, that'd be Wednesday, 0200 Zulu. And our recording schedule and countdown timer for the next episode is on the homepage of the website. So thanks again, all our listeners, live, quasi-live, uh, podcast and all. We uh, couldn't do it without you guys, and uh, we're more than happy to have you along for the ride. So uh, my name's Pete, Victor Echo 2 X-Ray, Papa Lima. I'm in beautiful but cold Montreal, wishing you a good uh, fortnight, and uh, I'll say see you later. Take it away, Russ. 
All right, this is Russ, K5TUX. You can find me on all the social media networks out there as J.R. Woodman. I'm also K5TUX at 73s.org. Email us at info at lhspodcast.info. Check out lhspodcast.info for all the information about the show, our Indiegogo campaign, our contest for a Raspberry Pi, etc., 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 and we hope to see you all in Dayton. Well, with that... From Between the Peaks live, this is Russ, and this has been 121 of Linux in the Ham Shack. Catch you next time. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, Cheryl. Goodbye. Hey, is that toenail fungus?